The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. We live in a day of incredible change, global changes that occurred even in the last 10 years have been nothing short of catastrophic, if we think of all of human history, with the invention of the internet and with all of its curses and blessings, change and societal transformation are now occurring at really breakneck speeds. Revolutionary ideas are introduced and holistically embraced within less than a decade. Changes that would have taken centuries and ages past to gradually take hold and find popular acceptance within the culture are now accepted and embraced as if they're old truths as old as the earth. In reality, they're new revolutionary ideas. We might say that we live in a day in which the foundational pillars of our society are being toppled everywhere we look. Things that were once considered to be heinous sins within the American culture are now widely accepted and praised as moral virtues. Sin and evil are now accepted as righteous behavior. Righteous acts are now judged in the court of human opinion to be evil and to be found to be wicked things. And again I say the foundational pillars of our society are being torn down. Think of the sanctity of human life. The the preciousness of human life is now gone. Babies are murdered regularly in the womb. Teenagers Teenagers are induced by a runaway social contagion and are encouraged to mutilate their bodies. Unjust judges let murderers walk free. And it's, it's doubtful in our culture that even a thing like per- pornography could even become more mainstream than it is. It's everywhere. Individuals are now encouraged to prostitute themselves online for cash. The state of the family is in utter upheaval. Divorce has long been accepted even in the church. Homosexuals are now allowed to pretend that they are married, and they're even told that they're married by the culture. Homosexual couples have surrogate children. Children are raised without the nurture of a mother and the the fear and admonition and instruction that comes from a father. Everything is being redefined. Really, with an unparalleled bravado, modern man is re-envisioning morals. And in a postmodern society, each passing generation is encouraged to really recraft and and retool morals for their own liking. And so we say, yes, the foundational pillars of our society are being toppled. You really can't argue against that point. Again, I say, it's a moral virtue in our country right now to encourage school-age children to have sex change surgeries. What moral insanity So we say, yes, the the foundational pillars of our society are certainly being toppled everywhere we look. And in in many of those pillars, those foundations have already fallen. But now I want to ask you a very important question. And it's this. 
If you agree and you can recognize that, yes, the foundations of our society are being toppled, ask yourself, where did those foundations come from? Where did those foundations come from? Where do we get these foundational convictions about how the world ought to operate? The moral convictions that have so long been ingrained into the societal fabric of our country. Where did they come from? Who erected those pillars? Was it man? Was it the founders of our country who decided those things? We'd say, well, no. Those, came, those things came from God. Those convictions came from the Lord. It was God who told us that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, contrary to so-called homosexual marriage. It was, it was God in his word that informed us that from the beginning of creation, God created them male and female, contrary to today's transgender mob. It was the word of God that tells us whoever sheds man's blood, by, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So if you've just been hearing those things, I just quoted three verses one from the New Testament and two from the Old Testament. Yes, that last one, Genesis 9-6, is clearly in the Old Testament. Genesis, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Genesis 9-6. So this verse tells us how we ought to think about murder today. And how we should even punish murderers today. Now here, at this point, many Christians will object. And they'll say, well, well, that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. We're, we're not under the Old Testament. We're, we're under the, the New Testament. The Old Testament is no longer applicable to us. And if, and if you think that way, let me just tell you that you've been misinformed and misled. You know 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. I, I regularly quote these verses to you. It says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And again, I just want to stress, all Scripture, which would certainly include the Old Testament, was meant to train us for righteousness, to equip us how to live. The Old Testament teaches us about what is righteous. It teaches us about what is evil, just like the New Testament in a similar passage to 2 Timothy 3, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 10 where the Apostle Paul, after reviewing some of the moral failings of Israel in the past, wrote this in 1 Corinthians 10.11. He says, Now these things, these things that happened to ancient Israel, they happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the world have come, or the ends of the ages have come. Did you catch that? He says, the Old Testament was written for our instruction to teach us, for our instruction today, and for those who live at the end of the ages. That would be us. And you might say, okay, well, yes, the Old Testament is certainly beneficial for us to read and understand and to learn from. But you might say, but we're not under the Old Testament law. And it's at that point I think we need, to, we need to think very carefully. What do we mean when we say we're not under the law? I know Romans 6.14 says we're no longer under law, but under grace. 
But I don't think that, mean, that verse means what we typically think it means, or at least as it is commonly believed uh, today or presented to mean today. Now, let me state to you what I believe to be the Christian's relation to the law. The Bible is clear that keeping the law will not save anyone. You cannot be saved by doing good things, by keeping the law. That's incredibly clear in Scripture. We're saved by grace. You cannot be justified or saved by keeping the law. Furthermore, the Mosaic Law Code revealed, beginning in Exodus 20, was given to Israel. That was Israel's law. The Mosaic Law had some specific instructions for how Israel as a nation was to live in their land as God's set-apart people, this theocratic nation. But, as far as I know, none of us here are Israelites. We are not Jews in that sense. Perhaps some of you are, but not that I'm aware of. Therefore, as non-Jews, as Gentiles, we are not under that Mosaic Law Code. However, This does not mean that we have no law from God. We need to be very clear about this. We have a law from God. We're not not under the Mosaic law code, that's true, but we are under the moral framework, the pattern of righteousness that we find throughout all of the Bible. It's outlined in all of the Bible, generally speaking. We are under God's standard of righteousness. I might prefer to call that the law of God. We are under the law of God. And the law of God finds expression in the Mosaic Law Code, but it also finds expression outside of the Mosaic Law Code. For example, just think of the Sixth Commandment for a moment. It's found in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of the Mosaic Law. It is, you shall not murder, Exodus 20, verse 6. So this law is, of course, not only applicable to Israel, This prohibition against murdering is applicable in every age of human life. Clear back to Genesis. Again, think of the words that God said in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for he is made in the image of God. So that verse, that law, was given long before Abraham, long before the nation of Israel ever existed, long before Moses. That's Genesis 9-6. 9-6. And therefore, Genesis 9-6 doesn't have anything to do with Israel, directly speaking. It has to do with all of us. All of us. We should not murder. And if someone does murder, they should receive a just penalty. So Genesis 9-6 is morally binding upon us as Americans. Meaning that God will hold us to that standard. God will one day judge us by Genesis 9-6. And it is morally binding, not only on us as Americans, but upon every human on the planet. Murder is wrong everywhere. There's not a culture on the earth where murder is not evil and morally condemned by God. Genesis 9-6 is morally binding upon us. That's true of us, and it's true of those living, for say, under the oppressive rule of North Korea's dictator, King Jong-un. There, it is also wrong to murder. Murder is evil everywhere. And murder is evil because God said it was. God said it was. It's part of God's moral law. Or or maybe we just might say his unchanging moral framework. We just might, again, call it the law of God. Now, I know I'm tackling here a huge subject, a subject upon which there's 
uh, much confusion today in the church. But I want to show the, the Christian's relationship to the law of God or the Christian's relationship to the moral framework of righteousness found in the Bible. And to demonstrate this to you, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'd love it if you have a Bible with you this morning. I want to show you this very important passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want you to think with your own eyes, see what God has revealed here, and think about the meaning of this text. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look with me beginning in verse 19. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Paul says, For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. Paul is saying here he's made himself a slave. He's made himself a servant of others so that he might win them to Christ. By this he means that he's willing to adapt the, the customs of whatever people he's witnessing to so that, so that those customs will not become a hindrance to the gospel. He's willing to become a servant and a slave to all. He explains more in the next two verses. Look at verse 20. And he says, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. And to those under the law, as under the law, though not, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. I know this is a, a challenging verse, but, but let me break it down a little bit. He, when he was around Jews, when Paul was around Jews, Paul followed the customs of the Jews for the sake of evangelizing them. He also refers to those as Jews in this passage as those under the law. That, that would be those under the Mosaic law given to the nation of Israel. In our Bibles, just generally speaking, whenever we see the word law, we should train ourselves with this question, asking ourselves, what law is being referred to here in this passage? What principle is being referred to in this passage? In this passage, these verses, verses 20 and 21, there's actually three different laws being referred to. God gave the Jews the Mosaic law. The Jews are under the Mosaic law. But about himself, Paul says, though not being myself under the law. You see that? Paul didn't consider himself under the Mosaic law. But think about it. Paul was born as an Israelite. He was a Pharisee. He was, a, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And so he, but now he's saying, I'm no longer under the law. And we say, well, how can that be? How did he do that? Why was Paul no longer obligated to keep the decrees and ordinances of the Mosaic law code? Well, he became a Christian. He became a Christian. He was set free from the Mosaic law with all of its civil and ceremonial stipulations. But this does not mean that he was free from God's law altogether. He's not free from God's moral framework, God's standard of righteousness. And we see this in the very next verse. Note carefully what comes. Paul now gives us his evangelistic strategy for reaching Gentiles. Look at verse 21. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. So Paul says to, about this, the Gentiles, to those who do not have the Mosaic law, he lived in a way that was free of the Mosaic law. For example, I think this means that he was free from the dietary restrictions when he was in Gentile areas. You know, there was no, he could go ahead and eat pork if he needed to. That didn't bother him. 
He was not under the law. He was a Christian. So when he was ministering to Gentiles, he lived like he did not have a law. But note what he says. He says of himself, I lived without the law, without the Mosaic law, though not being without the law of God. That's Paul speaking of himself. Paul, what are you talking about? Not being without the law of God. But he says, and under the law of Christ. Another law. You see, Paul still considered himself to be under the law of God. He's a Christian and he's under the law of God. As Christians, Paul knew that he was responsible to keep the law of God. And again, not the Mosaic law code given to Israel, but the law of God. Again, God's standard for righteousness, which he calls here the law of God. And furthermore, Paul also says that he's under the law of Christ. The law of Christ refers specifically to how the followers of Christ are to live. Uh, we're to submit to the laws of Christ. One quick reference, think of John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Another word for commandments is law. If you are a Christ follower, you will submit to Christ's commands, his law. That's the law of Christ that Paul refers to here. And so I would argue that every human on the planet is under the law of God. They're under the God's standard of righteousness. Every Christian, every Christian, those who have committed to Christ, are both under the law of God and also under the law of Christ. They are, they're under the law of Christ as well as the law of God. And the key idea for us to see today is that Paul considered the Gentiles to be under the law of God. They had God's law over them. And so catch this point. Every human on the planet is responsible to submit to this law of God. Not the Mosaic Law Code. This law of God. This moral framework that's been provided by God. This standard of righteousness. Every human, Christians and non-Christians alike, are obligated to keep God's law. Again, not the Mosaic Law Code. But again, a framework of righteousness established throughout the Bible. Every human on the planet is obligated to keep God's law. And if they don't, if they rebel against it, if they break God's law, they will be held accountable. Therefore, to murder another human being is evil and sinful in every culture on the planet. That's just true because, again, God said, it so. God said so. You see, God is the king of this planet. That's the way this planet works. He is king, and he rules this planet by his law. The law of God. Again, not Mosaic law, code. That was for Israel. But the law of God as an expression of Yahweh's authority in this world. And again, every person on the planet will be held accountable by God's law. On the last day, they will be judged based upon their obedience to God's law. This truth is abundantly clear in the book of Psalms, which we've been studying in recent weeks. If you would, turn back there with me to, uh, to Psalm 1. I want you to see this in the opening psalm and just working our way through a couple of psalms this morning. Open up to Psalm 1. What we have in Psalm 1 is just a universal truth about life on the earth. Essentially, Psalm 1 says there's two ways to live. There's two ways to live. There's a way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And as verse 2 puts it, the righteous delight themselves in the law of Yahweh. And they delight in God's Torah. They delight in his teaching, in his, in, in, in his instruction. But the wicked, they reject it. And therefore, in verse 5, the wicked will not stand in judgment. 
because they reject the law of God. Look also at verse 2. Look at verses 10 through 12 of Psalm 2. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And note how broad this is. Kings, judges of the earth, they're instructed to do what? Submit to Yahweh. And Yahweh's anointed. That would be Messiah Jesus. Submit to him or you will soon suffer wrath. Again, that's true, that's true of every king on the planet, every judge, every president. They must submit to God. They must submit to Jesus by surrendering to God's law. And if they do not do so, they'll be held accountable. But what do the kings of the earth do? Well, they do what verses 2 and 3 depict. Look back at Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart. And let us cast their cords from us. Get these bonds off of me. I don't want your moral constraints on my life. I'm going to govern how I want to govern. That's how the judges of the earth function. And the kings of the earth try to free themselves from God's moral restraint. They try to throw off God's law. Then look also in Psalm 4. Here David is lecturing rebels and he tells them to get themselves right with the Lord. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Tremble, do not sin, ponder in your hearts upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Psalm 5. We are reminded of God's view of those who reject him and the future justice that will be Upon them, look at verse 4 of Psalm 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. Verse 6. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. This is what God thinks about wicked and those who rebel against him. Note what man must do in Psalm 7. Here's what every man must do on the planet. Look at Psalm 7, verse 12. If a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. He's also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. This is a threat. You you need to repent or, or you will suffer God's wrath. Psalm 9 speaks of the justice by which God will judge the earth. Look at Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8. It says, Yahweh abides forever. He's established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He'll judge everyone in righteousness. He will render justice for the peoples with equity. And we say, well, why can God judge like this? Well, Psalm 10 really, I think, informs us. Look at Psalm 10, verse 16. It's the first half of the verse. Look what it says. Yahweh is king forever and ever. Yahweh is king. He's always been king, and he'll always be king. He's king forever and ever. And I just wonder, do you believe that? Do you believe that Yahweh is king forever and ever? Are you in submission to Yahweh as king? God has always been king. He will always be king of the universe. But think about it for a moment. 
as the great king of the universe, as the great judge of all things, how does God rule as king? We would know he's, he's not actively enforcing submission to his law. He, he allows people to rebel on the planet. He lets them express their rebellion against him. He's not actively forcing compliance to his moral standards. He lets men rebel. But nonetheless, he is the king, and he rules by giving a law, and then he holds men accountable by judging them in the end. So in this life, the wicked can reject God all their life, but in the end, they will bow their knee before the Lord, and Yahweh will punish them for their rebellion against God and his word. So let me now come back to where where I started. We are living in a day in which the foundational pillars of our society are really being toppled. They're being eroded everywhere we look. And those foundational pillars come from the remaining vestiges of a people who once esteemed the Bible. They come from a people who understood the obligation among mankind to submit to God's law. They were a people who understood the responsibility to submit to this moral framework given to us by God. You see, the founders of our country, those who were Christians and others who were not, still nonetheless regularly quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. They thought about God's revelation in relation to how they should lead this country and govern. But today, in this sea of postmodern thought that we live in, with the church who's lost her voice and who's really lost her grip on the Bible and doesn't understand the Bible, now these foundational pillars are toppling everywhere, and our culture is increasingly turning away from God and the law of God altogether. Certainly, they'll be held accountable for this religious departure from the truth. But really, here's the question for the, day, for the day. When these foundations are coming down, what should the people of God do? As you survey the culture and just see this moral insanity everywhere, and you see these pillars of society that we once all believed now just coming down, what should we do? Really, I think like never before since the founding of our nation, uh, the debauchery today that is openly celebrated is just at an all-time high. Sin and rebellion against God are just openly flaunted in the streets. And the question of the hour becomes, what are we to do? As God's people, what should we do? I think Christians in our country and many other countries are asking this very question. I would say it is the question of the day. And amazingly, God has given us an answer. He has left his answer right under our nose in a little-known psalm, Psalm 11. And in studying this short psalm this past week, these seven verses, I was just shocked and amazed at how applicable these words are for this very hour. Let me tell you, if you are at all frightened and worried about the state of our country, and I'll tell you that I'm there at times, sinfully I think I'm there at times, but if for worried saints like myself, we need Psalm 11. And so please look at it with me in your Bible. Please turn there if you're not already. Let's read it together this morning. Just as a note, I chose this morning to preach out of the Legacy Standard Bible. There was just a few different translation things that I felt were preferable 
in the LSB over the New American Standard, which I typically preach from. But follow along with me as I read Psalm 11, verses 1 through 7. Please look in your own Bibles. In Yahweh I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. And the upright will behold his face. In this psalm, David gives us the answer before he even gives us the problem. Uh, Look at the opening line that really sets up the, the rest of the psalm. In Yahweh, I take refuge. In Yahweh, in God, he says, I shelter in him. Metaphorically, this seems to convey that David is saying, I trust in Yahweh. My hope is in Him. Therefore, he says in verse 1, how can you say to me? How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? That's the second half of of verse 1. And the you in verse 1 is a plural you. How can you say this? Apparently, there was a group of people that David was in discourse with of some kind. And judging by what comes next in verses 2 and 3, These people who are talking with David seem to consider themselves as David's friends or his companions. They appear to mean well. They have David's best interest in mind. They are saying to him, look, flee as a bird to our mountain. Retreat. Run away. That's the meaning of flee. It's it's really the opposite of taking refuge. Just run. Flee. It's running away. Fly like a bird taking cover in the mountains. But David's response is, what? How can you say that? You want me to run away? In a time like this, you want me to run for the hills? David's response in verse 1 indicates that such a course of action, fleeing, would be incompatible with David's faith. He will not flee. And instead, he's going to take refuge in God. But before we dismiss the suggestion to flee given by David's friends here, we need to understand their reasoning, why they were telling him to, to flee. And that's what we find really in verses 2 and 3. I just called it reasons to flee in verses 2 and 3. Look at the first provided in verse 2. Look at it with me. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. It's important to note that David is quoting his friends here uh, or these well-intentioned individuals who are instructing him. Throughout verses 2 and 3, most English versions place quotation marks beginning in verse 1 and then ending at verse 3. You see that there. So in verse 2, this group is saying to David, Look! The wicked are bending their bow right now. They're putting the string on the bow. They're stringing their bows as we speak. They're getting their arrows ready. 
It's like they're assassins and they're hunting under darkness. It's like a nighttime ambush. And and they're after the upright. Those who are righteous. They're they're after honest citizens. They're after the the people of God. These are well-concealed snipers specifically targeting the righteous because they hate everything about the righteous. And so, David, here's your reason to flee. Here's your reason to run. You are in imminent danger. This is not safe for you to be here anymore. So you need to get out of here, David. Run, flee. And then we find a second reason in in verse 3. Look at it with me. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I think we need to read verses 2 and 3 with just a hint of despair if the foundations are being destroyed, if the, if the foundations are lost, what can we do? It's interesting. The first time I ever heard this verse really publicly referred to uh, was by Ken Ham, the president of Answers in Genesis. And, and the way he spoke of this verse was to kind of say, look, we need to, we need to repair the foundations. We need to kind of re-buttress uh, our supporting convictions about the Bible. And... and so he read it as a, as a way of saying, like, this is proverbial wisdom. We need to work on the foundations. But understand that in context here, that's not really what this is saying. It's not really how it's being used. This is not proverbial wisdom here presented. This is, this is hopeless, fearful uh, words of people who have lost faith. They're saying, look, we can't do anything. The foundations are being toppled. There's, there's nothing left for us to do here. We've got to get out. The foundations, it's a rare word in Scripture. It's actually used nowhere else in all of Hebrew Scripture. This word in modern English, or modern Hebrew, means it's the base of a cliff or, or, or the foundation of, of a cliff. In other ancient languages similar to biblical Hebrew, this, this can refer to pillars or, or columns. It can refer to the bottom floor of a building. But generally, foundations... It's probably the best word to use. And, it, and it's the foundations that are being cast down. This word thrown down or toppled is used in Proverbs 24, 13 for throwing down the stones on top of a city's wall. They're being toppled. I just wanted to note what a few of my favorite commentators on the book of Psalms said about this verse. For one, Alan Ross who's written an excellent, lengthy, exegetical commentary on the psalm, said this, The word foundations, he writes, is figurative for the established customs, laws, and ways of life in the land. It refers to the stays of society, the things upon which the culture is built like a foundation. Or Dr. William Barrick, a longtime professor at the Master's a university and seminary, uh, said this about this word foundations. He says, By the word foundation, David refers to established institutions of the community, including social and civil order. End quote. Or one other one, commentator Stuart Perrone noted that the foundations or pillars of the society could refer to principal persons in society, magistrates and leaders or to the principles of law and order that were now being subverted. So in Psalm 11, Psalm 11, verse 3, this term foundations 
I think it refers to the principles of law and order in the land. The institutions of social and civil order that govern the people. Established laws and customs of the land. And so here are David's friends warning him, look, they're like, don't stay here. This place is falling apart. The society is coming unglued. It's time to buy a bunker. Desert this place. Head for the hills. So here's the, the reasons to, f- to flee are quite simple. David, it's dangerous for you here, and this society is completely done. It's, it's lost. It's time to cut our losses, suffer our losses, and just move on. But David rejects that wisdom. David rejects these reasons to flee. Even when the, these foundational pillars of society are being toppled, David says, look, there's work to do. David says, how can, how can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? And no, he says, that's incompatible with my faith. And so David has heard their reasons to flee, and now he gives them his reasons to trust Yahweh. That's what we find coming next. Look, look at verse 4. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eye, eyelids test the sons of men. This verse pictures Yahweh seated in his heavenly temple, seated upon the throne, and he's watching. He's taking note of all things. He's, he's taking note of what is happening on the earth. His eyelids are even mentioned as being involved. Perhaps this pictures God as if he's squinting to clearly capture all that's happening here on the earth. Careful watchfulness. God is taking meticulous care to observe all that happens on the earth. God is holy. He's seated in the heavens. He sees all. He remembers all. The fact that he's seated in the heavens demonstrates he's sovereign over this planet. And God is intensely aware and interested in all that is playing out upon the earth. God's enemies may hide themselves in darkness, but but God sees them. Verse 5 then continues in a similar vein. Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked, the ones who love violence, his soul hates. His soul hates. By the way, I prefer the way that the ESV and the LSB translate this verse. Note the different responses uh, to the righteous and the wicked. To the righteous, he, he tests them. He tests them. In other words, He proves the righteous by testing them. He he tests them to develop develop them and to to check the the integrity of them and and their faith, testing them to help them grow in their faith. He brings challenges and trials into the lives of the righteous so that their faith would be tested. He tests them to demonstrate that their faith is pure. This truth is echoed again and again in, in, in the New Testament First Peter, think of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, well-known words. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its per- perfect result, so that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. So God brings trials into our life to test us, to test our faith. So those who are truly of God who are truly in Christ, their faith is tested by trials and hardships. But you see, when trials become too much and temptations become overpowering, and then 
people go out and, and leave Christ and defect, those trials, those temptations expose false faith. False faith is found out when trials occur oftentimes. But the righteous, they withstand this God-ordained testing in their life. It says, Then he goes, as for the wicked, those who love violence, God's not testing them. God hates them, it says. God hates them. That's what it says in verse 5. Uh, for the wicked, they're only just repudiated by God. It's only rejection, and it's just a, a warning of judgment. Then in Psalm 6, we find a note of imprecatory prayer, we might call it. Look at verse 6 with me. May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will the portion of their cup, will be the portion of their cup. Obviously, to rain snares, to rain traps upon someone's head is using metaphorical language, but David prays that God will catch them in their evil trip them up in their evil. And he also prays, give them fire, give them brimstone, give them burning wind. And he says, may that be their portion in this life. May that be their cup or, or their lot. May that just describe them. And it seems that here David is referring to the reality of future judgment, fiery judgment. We say, say the reality of future in hell. He's asking God to bring these things upon the wicked. David knows that judgment is destined to come upon the wicked, so he requests it even now. He prays for what God has promised to give, which is a normal pattern of true prayer. Oftentimes in prayer, in the Bible we see when a promise is really taken up and considered, and then that promise is pressed into a prayer request. We ask for the things that God has promised to give. We pray things like, may your kingdom come, knowing that one day the kingdom will come. So we pray for it. He's promised to give it, so we pray for it now. It seems that what, that's what he's doing in verse 6. He's bring justice upon them. Hold them accountable. And then he closes with verse 7. A really a wonderful verse. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness and the upright will behold his face. So, so God is righteous. That describes God. His character is upright, morally pure. As 1 John says, in him there's no darkness at all. He, he's a righteous judge. And therefore, he loves righteous deeds. He, he loves righteousness. And so he loves when his people do what is right. He, he loves when they obey him. So Christian, understand that whenever you do what God commands you to do, when you do what is right and honoring to the Lord, God loves it. He loves it. And it pleases Him when you do so. God loves righteousness. And furthermore, it is the righteous, the upright, who will behold His face. Behold His face. Seems to be a reference to the future communion with God Himself. Really the greatest Victory for the righteous is yet to come, beholding the face of God. We find something similar in Psalm 17, verse 15. Let me read it to you. He said, David there says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Seeming the picture when he kind of graduates into glory. Job expressed the same hope 
when he said in Job 19, 26, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So instead of fleeing, instead of running away, instead of sort of faltering in his faith, rather than being overcome by fear, David says, no, I'm going to take refuge in God. I'm going to trust him. And then he says, here's why. Because Yahweh is holy. He's going to hold everyone morally accountable. He's the judge who forgets nothing. The righteous, he tests for sure with trials, but the wicked, they will suffer a fiery eternity. But the upright, they will behold God's face. They will commune with him. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness, and the upright will behold his face. So he says, no, I'm not fleeing to your mountain. I know that the stakes are high. I know that the society is coming unraveled. But my God is sovereign. I'm going to trust in him. Justice will be meted out soon enough. So when the foundations of, of, of the society are being to- toppled, the answer is to trust God. I think of Jesus' words in the upper room, talking with his disturbed men as he's announced that he will soon depart from them. In John 14, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So trust, David says, in his revealed character. Take refuge in God. He's righteous. He's holy. He's good. He's sovereign. He's a just judge. You might be tempted to think, well, that's about Psalm 11. It just doesn't seem to go far enough. Is that really it? When the foundations are coming, just trust God. Is that it? Just trust him? No call to arms? No instructions about revolts to overthrow the political opponents? Just, just trust him. Trust him and take refuge in him. Keep doing what's righteous. That seems to be the product of this psalm. Trust him. Do what's righteous. God loves righteousness. Keep doing the, the things that God loves. That seems to be the direction that this psalm is pushing us in in times of great upheaval in culture. But, but if you say, well, what is that? What, what are those righteous things that we should be doing? If God loves righteous deeds, what are those things that we should be doing? Well, I would just say, do all the things that you're already commanded to do. When, when the society is falling apart, do the things we're commanded to do. Make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel to every creature. Be an ambassador of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. At times, we're to follow John the Baptist by rebuking evil men who are in authority over us. And as David examples for us, we must be willing to call out evil men, even rulers, calling them to repentance and submission to God's law. I think also we're called to love the church. We're called to love the bride of Christ. We're called to serve others, employ your spiritual gift, minister to others, practice the one another's, be the salt of the earth, be the light of the world. Rejoice when you are persecuted. Read your Bible. Meditate on the scriptures. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the things we're called to do over and over again. We're to do righteousness. That's what we're called to do. So uh, that's what this psalm is pushing us to do, is to trust in him and do righteousness because the Lord loves righteousness. And I do think there's a danger of perhaps over-applying this psalm in which we could say it's, it's 
it's always wrong to flee. Or maybe we say there's never an appropriate time to flee. I wouldn't want to go that far. I think of the Apostle Paul escaping, riding down in a basket from a city wall. But Psalm 11 does call us to respond to everything with faith by by trusting in him. There may be a right time to flee and, and run, sure. But we run with faith in God and trusting in God. But our hope should always be found in God. He is our refuge. But if you're hearing this and you're saying, that's it, that's it again, just just trust God when the society is falling apart, does it not give us more here in this crucial psalm, asking the very question of the day? Is that it, trust in God? Well, if you're asking that, I just want to say, are you doing it? Are you really trusting in the Lord? Is your life characterized by a constant trust in our sovereign God? As the culture continues to slide into just a godless abyss, in in your heart, are you constantly taking refuge in God? Are you actively engaging in righteous behavior? Are you actively engaging in ministry? Are you making disciples as Jesus has commanded us to do? Are you investing your life in eternal matters? Or or are you fearfully flitting about like a bird from one news cycle to the next? Fear rising in your heart. You see, as I meditated on, on the call of Psalm 11 to trust in Yahweh and to practice righteousness, it occurred to me that there's perhaps two ways where we can measure our trust in the Lord in these dark days. Two ways that I just thought of, uh, two ways to gauge how much we're trusting in the Lord. And the first, I think, is our prayer life. You know, if, if, if we're really not spending time in the Lord, taking these concerns of our heart to the Lord, pouring out our hearts before him, can we really say that we're trusting him? If we're not communing with him in prayer, again, pouring out our hearts before him. So that'd be the first. Our prayer life, those who truly trust in the Lord are communing with him in prayer. And secondly, would just be our commitment again to do everything that he's commanded. To continue doing what he's commanded us to do. Continue making disciples, practicing righteousness. Those two things gauge are really how much we're trusting in the Lord. Our prayer life and how much we're taking serious the calls to submit to Christ and practice righteousness and live by his commands, which is what Jesus calls us all to do. Just recall the great, the great commission, go out and make disciples of all the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things that Christ commanded. That's what we're all to engage in, constant teaching others to obey everything that Christ commanded. So that exemplifies, that demonstrates our trust in the Lord when we stay faithful to do what he's called us to do and we stay, stay pray, prayerful in the midst of a society that is crumbling and falling apart. So let's go to the Lord in prayer towards that end.